Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every program, we talk about a new book that looks at some aspect of Africa and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Getting Somalia Wrong, Faith, War and Hope in a Shattered State, and the author is Mary Harper. Somalia has always seemed to me to be a very difficult place to understand, and in its own way so different from the rest of the continent. And for that reason, I was slightly nervous about reading the book and having to interview Mary about it. Of course, I needn't have worried. The book is a model of clarity and a thoroughly interesting read as well. Don't get me wrong, Somalia is still a fantastically difficult place to understand. But if you want to know more, then Mary's book is absolutely the place to start. After, of course, you've listened to this interview. Okay, well, I'm back in Bush House, the uh, venerable home of the BBC World Service, where I used to work for many years. Uh, Unfortunately, they're leaving soon, but I'm here to talk to one of my old colleagues, Mary Harper, who's the author of Getting Somalia Wrong, Faith, War and Hope in a Shattered State. Um, It's great to be here again, probably for my last time, Mary. It's good to see you. And uh, also, it's great to read the book. So can you just start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up writing this book? Yeah, I've always been interested in Africa. Mm-hmm. I was brought up there in Kenya. And uh, even though I came to a boarding school in the UK and went to university here, I kept on sort of being pulled back to Africa. And in fact, my whole working life has... I only know about Africa, either working in Africa or working about Africa or studying Africa. And uh, my interest my sort of passionate interest in Somalia started pretty much as soon as I joined the BBC World Service in the early 1990s because um, my mum happened to work in Mogadishu uh, just as the country was collapsing Mm. and the uh, former president, Siad Barre, was driven out of power and Mogadishu turned into a sort of burst into flames, basically. And my mum was working for Save the Children and uh, she had a phone. Save the Children had a satellite phone and that was one of the very few ways of getting uh, news from Somalia was via my mum's satellite phone. So I became a sort of the person who had the access to Somalia and I started working very closely with my colleagues in the BBC Somali service and I used to basically write reports for them and for anyone else in the World Service who was interested uh, in what you know on what was going on in Somalia and they taught me a huge amount I learned uh, very early on that you never uh, sort of even when you're speaking to Somali journalists you have to speak to lots of them because they all come from certain clans and have certain interests and things like that so I I learned all about Somali clans very very uh, sort of quickly and I just became totally fascinated by Somalia and I think it might be something to do with the fact that I love mathematics and I was very into maths when I was um, at school and Somalia was to me like a sort of mathematical problem, (laughs) especially the the clan system. Mm -hmm. So it just really, really appealed to me. 
It, I mean, when you talk about that, you're probably alluding to the fact that you start off with a what seems to be a fairly obvious structure of just a, a handful of clans. But then the more you look at it, the more that everything is divisible by more and more and more. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, every single clan, uh, like you say, you start with maybe five or six of the main clans uh, in Somalia, and then those divide almost sort of up to the point of infinity, almost to where you get the sense that maybe a single person will be, have to be ripped in two because mm-hmm. the the clans are so sort of, they unite people so intensely, but they also divide them as they split into the various sub-clans and sub-sub-clans. And in fact, one of my wonderful Somali colleagues, um, veteran Somali journalist called Abulai Haji, uh, he helped me quite a lot with the clan section of my book. And he brought me this book it written in Somali about Somali clans. And mm-hmm. I think there was about 700 different clans over dozens and dozens of pages. So that just showed me really how unbelievably complicated it was. And at the minute you're the one of the Africa editors in the newsroom here at Bush House. Yes, I am. Yeah. And um it's you know quite sad days for us here at Bush House <laughs> because the the home of the World Service uh, will only be its home now for a couple more months. Yeah. And as you've probably seen walking around, uh yeah. you know the pictures are being taken off the walls, various doors have pictures on them that sort of uh, labels on them that say you know this room is no longer in use Mm, so it's quite a sad 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 time Uh, but yes my job as Africa editor in the newsroom here is to work with um, basically shaping the news agenda for the day and for the night and the African stories that are of interest globally they're the ones I try to pick them out and convince the editors to take them seriously. Or sometimes mm. they ask me to write stories about Africa that I don't think are the best ones to write and we have an argument about mm. it. I'm very familiar. My last job here before I left was Europe editor in the newsroom. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, it, it's good that you mentioned clans because that's probably a very good place to start when we're talking about Somalia. And that is because... Uh, I mean, a lot of things you can say at first glance when you look at Somalia and then find out what happens afterwards, how it gets more complicated. But at first glance, one of the most intriguing things about Somalia is that in terms of ethnicity, in terms of culture, in terms of religion, uh, in terms of language, Somalia is one of those, well, as Botswana comes close. Not even places like Ethiopia or Eritrea come close. It really is much more unified than so many other places in Africa. And yet it, it, it's only when you look closer and you realise that there's this clan structure that really determines so much more that shows just how hard it is to keep this country together. So um, tell us a little bit about the clans. I mean, you know, it's all about lineage, isn't it? Yes, and it is crazy because, like you say, on the surface, Somalia looks like the one country in Africa uh, which should kind of work because, Mm -hmm. as you say, they're pretty much all Somalis. They speak the same language. They share the same culture. They share uh, Islam as a religion. They're incredibly proud of being Somali. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're fiercely nationalistic. But then they also have this thing called the clan. Not everybody agrees that the clan matters. Uh, Some academics and some Somalis themselves almost uh, like to say that it barely exists but I really I think that is not true because every Somali you meet sooner or later the whole clan issue is going to come up and um, you know you, you notice with certain Somali businesses all sorts of things 
actually they all come from the same clan or sub-clan. Mm-hmm. And uh, you hear people saying, well, yes, of course, I'll, I'll employ someone from my clan because that's the only person that I can trust. And clans uh, do start with uh, blood ties. So you'll have, a, let's say, a family, um, you know, with the father and the sons and the grandsons, and that's how the clans start. But mm-hmm. then they, they branch, and that's really how they, you know, they can be divided right down to that level but that's where they start and then if you imagine some kind of tree I suppose with branches Mm -hmm. going out and out and out Um, uh, but you know every member of let's say a clan or a sub clan they all see themselves as being part of the same family but a family that also has very very deep divisions mm-hmm. uh, within it so it is very very complicated but it is if you th- if you do think of, of it as a sort of mathematical puzzle and you you draw it on a piece of paper it actually is quite simple you can make you can simplify it if mm-hmm. you put it down on paper and do it as a sort of picture but to to think about it to try to describe it verbally is quite difficult and in fact I remember lots of my Somali colleagues would and they still do they they draw diagrams that is really the only way they (laughs) might even do it in the sand like if I'm with a Somali somewhere and I don't quite understand the relationship they'll get a stick and they'll start drawing in the sand the Mm -hmm. relationships and then it becomes quite obvious. Mm. Uh, Well a lot of this I'd imagine now is quite potent because of the difficulties of holding some kind of um, central authority and this is a way of being able to know who who you can trust, who you can rely on, etc. But I'm, I'm curious about where the clan structure came from. Is, is it something to do with the nomadism, which is such a strong feature of, of Somali life? Yeah, I mean, the clan is as ancient as the Somalis are. Mm-hmm. And I think that because Somalis are a nomadic culture and they are also an incredibly kind of horizontal culture mm-hmm. politically, uh, they, you know, no Somali is going to respect somebody just because they're the president or just because they're a millionaire. I mean, Mm -hmm. you'll be with the president or you'll be with a Somali millionaire and the person on the street who has absolutely nothing will, they see themselves as equal Mm -hmm. uh, and they're not afraid to criticise somebody who's in a position of massive power or authority. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that because Somalis... Even today, they're, they're always on the move. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, partly because of war, has kind of forced them out of uh, Somalia and forced them to become very globalised. But I think even without war and co- conflict, Somalis, they are incredibly mobile. And so they need some kind of thing that ties them together. And the bloodline, the lineage is the kind of most obvious thing, mm-hmm. uh, especially when they were nomadic and, you know, the idea of... I mean, the idea of central government is somehow very incompatible with the sort of traditional Somali way of life, which today, even though Somalis have modernised, they have they they value the nomadic life, the rural life, mm-hmm. more than any other people I know in Africa. Normally, nomads are quite despised and distrusted in Africa. But in Somalia, it's like the nomad is the ultimate. The mm-hmm. rural nomad, the camel herder, is still better than any Somali sitting in New York with posh cars and posh apartments or anything. It's like the ideal is that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that 
because they've preserved that respect for the sort of traditional way of life, the clan and the lineage has remained unbelievably important. And also mm -hmm. it's things like up to this day, if let's say somebody from, uh, if you're from clan X and I'm from clan Y and somebody insults me, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody from your clan insults me or hurts me, your clan has to pay compensation either through a member of your clan being killed, like a blood mm -hmm. uh, payment, blood feud, blood feud that still exists today, or it's done in the amount of... Uh, it, it's If it's money, it's done with... Ca uh, you calculate the insult in camels and then you translate that into dollars and you pay in mm -hmm. dollars. So, um, and all of that is really to do with the lineage and the clan. So even in the modern society, Somalis still use their clan and their lineage to ensure themselves, to uh, compensate themselves and know who to trust. Mm. And this all makes it extremely difficult for outsiders to understand Somalia and to understand what's going on. And that's one of the, one of the you know, it, it, it's not a normal country. It doesn't hang together in a normal way. We've talked about, uh, you know, the lack of central authority and we've talked about all these other structures that it is, as you were saying, you're, you're constantly having to ask your Somali friends, well, how does this relate to that? Uh, and that, that, that perhaps explains some of the difficulties that foreigners have had in history with Somalia, trying to get their heads around what's going on. There's a couple of quotes. One of them um, you mentioned actually from the 1960s, John Drysdale. And he said, ironically, Somali history has been demonstrated. Uh, ha Somali history has demonstrated that serious disorders have been traced not to any malfunction of the Somali system of authority, but to the unimaginative application of alien systems of government, which have inadvertently undermined it. And that really brings us up to date. I mean, you were there, you were talking about the 1990s. And that, of course, we have the uh, 1994, you have the Black Hawk Down moment and the uh, the abortive American attempt to kind of impose some kind of order there. And to this day, Somalia still looks from outside as a mess. But that's the outside view. How does it look from inside? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is amazing that that quote, as you say, from the 60s, mm. I mean, he, it could have been written today and it would have made perfect sense. Yeah. And so it partly makes you think, why, if people like John Drysdale was pointing that out then, and in fact, even way before, during the colonial period, I mentioned certain um, people in, in my book who are sort of saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and you think, well, why, if people, <laughs> <laughs> you know, why hasn't anybody tried a different approach to Somalia? Because actually when you, I suppose, suspend belief and suspend your sort of what you've learned about how societies work and Western democracies and all things like that. If you kind of Som Somali society act actually works incredibly efficiently, and if you mm -hmm. things like the way they deal with money and the way Somalis pass money around, they have an, such an efficient system of financial services that doesn't need yeah. any kind of which banking. has been enhanced by the telecommunications, which is another thing that you point out in the book that, that has been able to establish itself in what looks from the outside to be complete anarchy. Yes, exactly. And But actually, I think anarchy is like the, completely the wrong word because the this, once again, this clan system and yes. the lineage system and the fact that you can trace every single Somali. Right. You never have to worry that Somali is going to run away with your money because you can find that <coughs> Somali through their name. Their mm -hmm. name and their clan is like their passport. So... Um, it actually Somali society 
works incredibly well on one level, kind of economically, socially, culturally. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem is politically, because you've had, uh, number one, the colonial period, and then you've had the dictatorship under Siad Barry, where he, the, the president Siad Barry, he kind of tried to destroy a lot that was the sort of Somali way of life, like the clan, cl clanism was banned. He imposed a kind of scientific socialism, mm -hmm. he called it, and they used to burn effigies of the clan and people weren't allowed to address themselves with clan names anymore and things like that. And then after him, I suppose we had the collapse of that kind of state, but then the outside world has basically tried to shape Somalia and it's still doing it now. Somalia is in a period of political transition mm -hmm. and in a way the United Nations and the, the powerful countries like the United States are trying to impose something on Somalia that I, I predict that it isn't going to work because mm -hmm. it doesn't suit the way Somalis do things. Mm. And it is quite frustrating because there are parts of Somalia, in particular um, the, the self-declared Republic of Somaliland, which broke mm -hmm. away in 1991, where the, the outside world ignored it and it has developed quite a f sort of a, a system of politics that works really well, that marries the traditional Somali ways with a bit of Western democracy, a bit of Sharia law, lots of other things. And mm -hmm. this sort of hybrid system seems to work really, really well. Um, but it is it does seem strange that the outside world, number one, hasn't learned by from its mistakes because it has made quite a few. Mm -hmm. uh, it's had a lot of failed efforts to sort, to sort out the problems in Somalia. And number two, that it hasn't kind of bothered, I suppose, to try to get to grips with certain things about Somali society that, you know, with a bit of reading and asking some Somalis, you're going to find out about it. And then things start to make mm. sense that seem very, very odd if you don't bother to try to learn mm. about them. Absolutely. Um, but the thing is that there are quite strong reasons for the international community to care about Somalia. Um, you know, most recently, perhaps uh, we've been dealing with uh, with with the issue of piracy. And uh, hang on, it's page one hundred and forty-four. I think there's this fantastic map that you've got where you're, you're showing the, the the length and breadth of piracy attacks uh, which originate in Somalia, and it goes up to pretty much the the Indian Ocean off Pakistan, all the way out. Uh, directly eastwards as far as the Maldives and then as far south as Mauritius and the southern end of Madagascar. So that's one thing. Then you've got, um, you know, threats from militant Islamism uh, and you've also then got uh, threats to human security such as the famines that, uh, you know, periodically strike this area uh, in whatever magnitude. Uh, and then on top of that, it's worth mentioning that that there is such a concept as Greater Somalia. And in fact, the flag, if you go back to it, where we've got the blue background, you've got this white star with five points on it. And the, the five points sort of uh, indicate the extent to which Somalia can be extended beyond its current borders. And so you've got, you know, places such as Ethiopia and Kenya actually get mixed up in this. So so generally, this is not a country that, that the world can just sort of forget about, you know, in the way that we might have been able to do with, say, Albania during the 1950s and 60s. It really matters. Yeah, Somalia definitely matters. And in fact, just quickly, like, like you mentioned, the five-pointed Somali star, mm -hmm. and I would now add a sixth point now, oh. which is the Somali diaspora. Ah, now I want yeah. to talk about that later, so, <laughs> okay. so, 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 but, um, so we'll get on to that. Yeah, sure. But Somalia without 
question matters to the outside world, and increasingly so. Um, you mentioned piracy, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, obviously th- sort of threatens all of us, and it affects prices of lots of commodities, especially mm-hmm. oil. Um, and in terms of the Islamist threat, uh, for example, the uh, think tank, the Royal United Services Institute, mm-hmm. recently uh, issued a report where they said that actually the biggest threat to the UK was what they described as a lone wolf Somali terrorist, mm. you know, coming back from being trained uh, in Somalia, possibly a member of the Somali diaspora in the UK, of which dozens have gone back to Somalia, you know, coming back to the UK and blowing themselves up. Uh, suicide mm-hmm. bombing has become a real fashion in Somalia. Uh, the FBI is equally concerned about that and it's set up monitoring centres in places like Minnesota, which have vast yes. Somali communities. So... Um, Somalia matters hugely to the outside world now, but it is it's certainly in terms of, terms of the Islamist issue, it could be argued that, in a way, the United States and others who intervened in 2006 uh, when a sort of group of Sharia courts mm-hmm. established some kind of order in those parts of Somalia that had been the most collapsed and the most violence uh, the most violent um, uh, the US was led to believe partly by certain Somalis who were opposed to this group of Sharia courts you know that this was a sort of al-qaeda linked threat and mm. so with the Ethiopians uh, there was an intervention and they destroyed the Islamic courts union and in fact that effort to get rid of something that was sort of alleged to be an al-qaeda mm-hmm. threat gave rise uh, to a militant group called Al-Shabaab, mm-hmm. which is definitely linked to Al-Qaeda. So it could be argued that the sort of foreign intervention in Somalia in 2006, uh, which was supposed to be getting rid of some perceived Islamist threat, almost gave rise to something that is genuinely an, an Islamist threat. So it's quite ironic. Mm. But uh, whatever the re- you know, however that threat came about, uh, it is... Uh, it, there's no way that the outside world can just like you know put sort Absolutely. of shove Somalia in the background uh, because it does represent a zone of um, real instability and sort of danger to the neighboring countries, particularly places like Ethiopia, Uganda, and Kenya, which mm. have forces in Somalia that some Somalis are opposed to, but also um, the whole of the Western world, because a lot of the rhetoric used by uh, the Islamist group Al-Shabaab is incredibly threatening uh, towards Western countries. And who knows whether some uh, militant in Somalia will take those sort of threats seriously and come back to the UK or somewhere in perpetrate some act yes. so so they can't ignore it absolutely not and one of the other ironies of the the situation is that there was a lot of talk especially after the 9/11 attacks back in 2001 about failed states being a perfect place to shelter and harbor uh, al-qaeda type operations um, and somalia was was fingered then as a mm-hmm. as a, a f- failed state and a potential harbor in the same way that afghanistan had been and yet there was quite a lot of um, academic thought suggesting quite the opposite, that because it had such a rigid clan structure, um, it was very difficult for any outside forces, whether, you know, a Saudi Arabian such as uh, Osama bin Laden, to go there and be able to disrupt a clan structure that was so firmly in place. And, of course, 
Now, we have seen that various things, internal and external, have actually brought about an atmosphere where Al-Shabaab can, can start to perpetrate this. It's, it's, it's quite a complicated situation. Maybe this is when we can talk about, I mean, because you've, you've touched upon it a couple of times, maybe we should talk about the fact that there is this diaspora. Um, it's Minneapolis is one of the centres and London is one of the centres. Um, and you've referred to it almost as, as one of the six... Uh, points on a on a on a six-pointed star now um how how much of the population lives abroad or do you have any idea well the united nations says it's a million out of a total mm. about of about nine million somalis in total so proportionally quite enormous yeah and it might well be significantly higher than that if you think that the Darb refugee camp in northern kenya mm-hmm. has got Half more than half a million Somalis living in it alone, so it would, you know, it could safe. I think it would be quite safe to say that it's more more than a million Somalis mm-hmm. who are who are living in the diaspora in one form or another, uh, and they they're scattered all over the world. I mean, now it's kind of wherever it's easy to get in uh, without difficult visa issues and all of that, you'll find Somalis. I have a friend in uh, Kathmandu in Nepal who said that lots of Somalis are turning up there now because you can get a tourist visa at the airport. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they'll, they'll find their way anywhere mm-hmm. in the world that they can um, that they can manage to get into. And then they will, uh, they're incredibly entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. And because they have these clan and lineage ties. Uh, It's really interesting. I interviewed a Somali businessman in Kenya and he was sort of, I was saying, what is the secret of Somali's success in terms of business? Because even if they're seen as a failed state, they're no way a failed economy. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, the thing is, you know, because of our clan and our system whereby we can trust each other because of the clan, uh, a Somali can go to Australia tomorrow and he will have no money at all. And he can literally, with his mobile phone, you know, mm-hmm. his internet, just get in touch with his clan. And tomorrow he will have $10,000 to set up a business. Mm-hmm. And he can pay it back later because people know where he is. And there's this whole system of trust and this in- incredible sort of system of money transfer that's very, very efficient and quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the Western world thinks it's a kind of way of uh, the, the Somali money transfer is a kind of way of funding Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups but actually it seems to be a way of keeping lots of Somalis alive mm-hmm. you know that's that's one of its main um sort of what it does so so a lot of the money flows back to Somalia itself yes it does and it's a huge percentage of Somali households that are reliant on remittances mm-hmm. um, from Somalis living abroad but then also you'll get like I when I was in Somaliland recently there was somebody in Somaliland who was sending $200 to a relative in Southwall in London so in fact you know there are people who they're making the money there and then are sending money to the UK and other places. So the money travels in lots of different directions. It's not all kind of what people might assume that Somalis in the West or mm. the Gulf are sending money back home. There's plenty of Somalis back home who are making lots of money sending it back to the so-called rich countries, to relatives there. So would it be fair to say that... There's a lot more money circulating than it looks to us from the outside, or at least to me from the outside. You know, when we hear about famine and we hear about all of the difficulties of life there. But the Somali community is pretty resilient and there is a bit more money floating around. Yes, uh, I, that is 
my understanding of the situation. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, there's been studies done uh, by think tanks and others that have sort of, even though Somalia is has come top of the list of the world's most failed states for four years in a row, mm -hmm. uh, actually its economy has is a is a lot healthier than a lot of other African countries. But you can't, it's difficult to measure because a lot of Somalia's, well, at least people think it's too dangerous to go to. Some parts of it certainly are too dangerous to gather mm -hmm. statistics. Uh, but, you know, just by being there uh, and knowing a lot of Somalis and spending a lot of time either in the Somali territories or with Somalis outside, there is a lot of money in, in Somalia mm -hmm. and amongst Somalis outside. Of course, there are lots and lots of Somalis who've got almost nothing and they should never be forgotten. But I think that this image uh, that we get in the media of the kind of starving Somali baby with the desperate, anguished mother holding mm -hmm. onto it. That is one image that is a real image. And like in, in the refugee camp in Dadaab that I visited recently, it was so extremely depressing. I've never been to such a sort of miserable place in my life. Like half a million Somalis trapped there with nothing to do, reliant literally on handouts. But then you meet Somalis, uh, I've met a lot of them in Somalia itself, who who are doing incredibly well, or Somalis who've made a fortune in places like Canada, London, mm -hmm. the United States, and in the more stable areas, a lot of them are going back now, uh, partly because they want to, but also because there's a lot of business opportunities there, mm -hmm. uh, and they're investing their money there, and they're doing very well, thank you. Mm. Um, I was wa also wanting to ask about what it actually looks like on the ground when you go, uh, you mentioned in the book about going to uh, Somaliland and then in the same day actually being in Somalia. Uh, and, and we shouldn't forget that there's a third bit as well, there's Puntland, which is the, the most, it's it's in between the two others at the pointiest bit of, of the Horn of Africa. But um, can you give us a bit of a picture because you, you draw out a lot of um, very interesting comparisons between being up in Somaliland and then being down in Somalia itself. Yeah, I mean, they are worlds apart. I mm -hmm. think now that the situation in Mogadishu is changing, uh, they will become more similar. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Mogadishu is still a broken city in terms of all the buildings being smashed up, but the capital of Somaliland was like that the first time I went there nearly 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was pulverised. It was known as the Dresden of Africa. It was the most bombed city Africa's ever had this uh, is Hargeisa Hargeisa yeah it was um absolutely smashed to pieces uh by aerial bombardment by by the Somali government against a rebel force that was based there um but certainly the time that I was referring to in my book when I visited uh, Mogadishu and Hargeisa in the same day was when Al-Shabaab was still very much in control of pretty much the whole of Mogadishu. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first thing I suppose that you noticed, apart from the broken buildings, that maybe I become a bit blasé about because I'm, I'd been there, seen mm. them before, but was the women uh, completely shrouded, covered in dark, heavy material, uh, covering right... And all you could really see, some of them you couldn't even see their eyes. And the traditional Somali way of dressing 
uh, for women is incredibly sort of bright. It's modest, but they wear mm. very gauzy, just beautiful material covered with flowers and glitter. And just seeing that, the lack of that colour was something that really, that was the thing that I noticed Mm. Most of all, uh, that was the thing that kind of hit me first, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the insecurity and the fear and people not going out and, you know, there were front lines in the city and all sorts of things like that. And uh, peacekeepers there not really able to keep any peace. Uh, but, you know, they they were there. So it was a sort of very milit- militarised. And then you go to another part, it's still legally another part of Somalia in the eyes of the outside world. You fly, you know, mm-hmm. an hour or so up north and you land in, in Hargeisa, uh, which used, as I said, when I first visited it, it was just destroyed. And there was, I mean, I got out of the plane and I saw this city like as far as i in every direction as far as my eyes could see there were just buildings and it was completely it was more peaceful i feel safer there than i feel in any other city mm-hmm. in well let alone in africa and i feel safer there than i do in london or new york and you're drawing the comparison to the 1990s when you first saw it yes it was destroyed. yeah okay. i first saw it in 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 the early 1990s um when there was still a civil conflict was raging there and um there'd been this this huge bombardment of the city and just to see uh you know in that single day the contrast between a place that was still broken and also a society that had been... I wouldn't say Somali society has been crushed by al-Shabaab, but a lot of Somali Mm -hmm. ways of life, people are not allowed to behave Mm -hmm. as they normally would. And then in Hargeisa, the sort of freedom and the relationship on that that day uh, was a day when al-Shabaab announced that men and women were no longer allowed to shake hands when they met each other which is something that lots of Somali men and women do apart from the more religious men who prefer not to shake a woman's hand and then when I got to Hargeisa you know the first you know I was sitting in a hotel and men and women you know as the men greeted the women uh, not only did they shake their hands but they kissed them because Mm -hmm. that is a traditional Somali form of greeting Mm -hmm. and to see those those contrasts in one day was just amazing and it was also very sad because i saw how much the somalis in the south had been forced to stop behaving uh, as they normally do mm. so it was it was really shocking it's remarkable the way that you describe it although as we said right at the beginning of the program islam is something that is part of the somali makeup um the way you're describing it it does sound as though something is being imposed from outside in perhaps the same way that we were talking about other things being imposed from from outside. Uh, do you think that there's a, a kind of viability to to this form of Islam in Somalia? Or do you think it really is just too alien so that after a while, you know, it's just not going to fit? I mean, that's one thing that I still haven't found the answer to is I don't understand how al-Shabaab has managed to whether it's impose or convince mm-hmm. uh, Somalis that the way of life that they profess is is the good way, uh, you know, no one else has ever managed to do that with Somalis. <laughs> the colonials never managed. Ethiopia's never managed. Mm-hmm. Um, the British, the Americans, 
people who advocate Western democracy. Nobody has ever, ever, ever managed to kind of stop Somalis from being Somali. And I always ask, like, how has Al-Shabaab managed to successfully transform Somali society in, in the areas they control? And even though they're on the back foot now, they still control mm-hmm. pretty much the majority of the southern and central parts of Somalia. Mm-hmm. And... Some people say oh, it's because everyone's frightened of them, but I don't know whether that really is is the answer or whether there are obviously some people, some Somalis vehemently they they adhere to, they believe right from the bottom of their hearts in the kind of form of Islam that Al Shabab is mm-hmm. has introduced, um, and you do even in places like Somaliland where Al-Shabaab is not really, at least it's not visibly present, there is also a a kind of fashion, I suppose, amongst young Somalis to be more conservative uh, in terms of religion, in terms of dress. Uh, Quite, you know, you'll you'll get older Somalis. It's funny because normally it's the other way around. Um, I've, I've been with groups of Somalis where a young Somali man will come in dressed in this very kind of slightly Saudi style of mm-hmm. dress, long white robes and some kind of thing on his head. And they'll, the, the old people will be going like, what are you doing, you Islamist? You know, mm. get out. Why are you dressing like that? Um, or women, the young women who wear niqab and cover their faces and the older women will be like, come on, you know, get a life, put on nice, more kind of (laughs) slightly revealing Somali clothes. Um, So I do think there is a kind of fashion among the young. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know whether it's, I don't know where it comes from. Some of it comes from from the Gulf, definitely. Some of it comes from internet and other forms Mm. of information that that, that they receive. Um, But I still feel that it's a paradox and I don't think that the way that this kind of Islam that Al-Shabaab has brought and, and other Islamist groups in Somalia, I I might be wrong, but my feeling is, is that it isn't going to last because mm-hmm. the way that the Somalis have adopted Islam uh, and they have been, you know, Muslims from way, way back. You know, they, they really, some of them say that they're related to the Prophet Muhammad. They mm-hmm. see them, themselves as some of the most ori- you know, original Muslims in the world. So I don't, I can't imagine that that form of Islam, the sort of extremist Wahhabi style of Islam, I can't imagine that it's going to have a lasting impact on Somali society because it's sort of anathema to so many other things mm. that are Somali. That's why I was intrigued. <laughs> yeah, well, I am still. Yeah. I mean, that's the one answer that I, didn't I, think that that'd be I an can't answer. get. Yeah. yeah, and I really don't understand it, but I'm always asking. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 don't, I, I know we don't have a massive amount of time left, and I, I, I did want to hear more about Somaliland. I've got to say, you know, you've got, you've got Somaliland and Puntland that, that, that are what, what are called de facto states. And I was just wondering, I mean, it does sound as though they are functioning. Economically, they're doing well, they're stable, they're going to persist. Um, is, is that your impression as well? Or are these just sort of you know, temporary expressions of frustration with the chaos that seemed to reign in, in bits of Somalia itself over the last decade or so? I think that Somaliland, which has been functioning as 
you know, I can't call it a country, but it's a, a functioning as a polity, in mm, economically, yeah. socially, politically, has been functioning uh, for more than 20 years. Today's the 18th of May, uh, right. 2012, and it's its 21st birthday today. Goodness so Somaliland is an adult now. <laughs> um, and I can't see how it can undo all of what it's done and mm -hmm. somehow rejoin Somalia, even if the rest of the country becomes stable. Mm -hmm. It's very, very difficult to imagine how it can. And also the the whole clan, you know, Somaliland has got different clans. It was treated very, very badly by the President Siabare. So there's a lot of bitterness there. It's almost like, well, why, why should we? have anything to do with our brothers down south. Mm -hmm. And also they were colonized by the British. Mm -hmm. So they kind of have an argument uh, with the African Union, which says that colonial borders must be respected in terms of mm -hmm. countries' boundaries. Uh, and and um, so Somaliland, in a way, has a right to think that it can be independent because it was a separate colony. Mm -hmm. um, and they, 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 they have quite a bad attitude towards the Somalis of the South, mm -hmm. and vice versa. Puntland is a bit different. Puntland has never sort of declared itself independent. It says it's still part of Somalia, mm -hmm. um, but that it has a lot of regional autonomy. And I think that it's possible that what will happen in the next Somalis, Somalia's next sort of phase uh, is that you will have regions like Puntland, Somaliland, and then there's a whole load of other sort of self-declared statelets or regions such as Gaumudug, Jubaland, Azania. I mean, there's so many. <laughs> I've met so many presidents. I even uh, recently met a president of a place called Haradere, which is like a basically a tiny pirate town. And he's mm -hmm. like the president of Haradere. You have about more than 20 presidents of little bits of Somalia. Um, and I think what might happen in the new, uh, once this political transition is completed, which is supposed to be in August this year, is that various regions will have a lot of autonomy and there'll be some kind of central mm -hmm. government, probably in Mogadishu still. Uh, but the, the danger is, is that these regions, which are receiving more foreign aid than they did before, they're being taken more seriously, they have already started, like Puntland and Somali, land mm -hmm. have got a violent uh, territorial dispute uh, mm -hmm. on their borders. Mm -hmm. Punt, uh, the, one of the main towns in Puntland uh, is actually divided in two with the next state south, <laughs> which is called Galmudug. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you if you have divided cities and you have uh, violent border disputes, I can imagine the next kind of stage of the Somali conflict will be the different regions of Somalia fighting each other. Mm-hmm. And that is what I fear might happen in, let's say, the next 10 years. That will be the picture of Somalia. You might not have... Maybe Al-Shabaab will be driven out by all these foreign forces that are there. Maybe it will have its own little enclaves in certain bits of the country. But all these different regions with their so-called presidents are going mm. to be fighting each other. I think that is quite a... It's a scenario that we could see. Sadly. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I thought I'd be even more confused by it than 
Well, in fact, I wasn't confused except in a good way at the end because it is a complex thing and it would be wrong if I ended up not confused. But I thought that, it, that, that a lot of it would just pass over and it's a, it's a testament to how clear and well-written it is. And it, it's a fabulous book. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I've already recommended it to two people just this week uh, and I'll recommend it to anybody who's listening. Uh, the other thing I did want to ask, and this is something I tend to ask at the end of each of these interviews, and I should have warned you about it. Uh, it it's basically asking, do you have a favourite place in Africa? And it, from what you're saying, it sounds though like it might be in, in Somalia or Somaliland or somewhere, but do you have a favourite place anywhere on the continent? Yeah, I have two favourite places. Okay, go for it. One of them is Hargeisa in Somaliland. Okay. Uh, I kind of see that a bit as my second home now. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, I have lots of friends because uh, I encourage people to go there and in fact I just met a friend today who I'd encouraged to go and he hated it and he said it was really boring and there was mm -hmm. nowhere to go and you can't drink alcohol and uh, he said he met lots of foreigners who just wanted to get out as soon as they could <laughs> but I find it a completely delightful place to be um, I enjoy the humour I enjoy the atmosphere I enjoy the weather I like the camels. I like going out into the middle of the, you know, desert. Mm -hmm. um, I enjoy the food. I just, I like the music. I like, I really love it there. Mm -hmm. And then my the other favourite place I have is right on the other side of the continent oh, right. in West Africa. And in some ways it's a bit like Hargeisa. <laughs> it looks a bit like Hargeisa. It's kind of dusty and shabby and sandy. Mm -hmm. And it's a place in Senegal called Kaulak which okay. is the second biggest town in Senegal. And I used to live there and work there uh, before I joined the BBC. And I suppose a bit like Hargeisa, it's a town where nothing happens. <laughs> but actually in towns where nothing happens, loads happen mm. in a sort of quieter, more amusing way than in a place like London that is incredibly vibrant and you have the entertainment laid on for you. Mm -hmm. Places like Kaulak and Hargeisa, there's no entertainment laid on for anyone. So you have to kind of make your own entertainment. Mm -hmm. But I, 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 people, they're so creative and spend their days, there's so much kind of laughter, I suppose. And um, I don't know, people who generate their own amusement you're always surprised. There's always funny things going on and you mm. find uh, really small things become very, very interesting. Things that in London you wouldn't even notice. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, but I, I do find those two places utterly charming, even though a lot of people I know say both of them are like their, their definitions of hell on earth. Mm. So maybe there's just something wrong with me. Not, I like them so much. not everybody's cup of tea, perhaps, but they, they do sound charming. Well, Mary, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure being back in Bush House and being back behind the microphones. And I feel sorry for all of you when you are finally turfed out of this fantastic building. And uh, thank you very much indeed for, for talking to us about your book. Very thank good indeed. I love it. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. And that was Mary Harper, the author of Getting Somalia Wrong, a terrific book that I thoroughly recommend for anybody who wants to understand this most complicated and important of African countries. This is Nicholas Walton wishing you a good day from here in London. <laughs>